Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Alexandra Hudson is founder and curator of Civic Renaissance. She was a 2020 Novak Journalism Fellow. She's been a contributor to Fox News, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and many other national organs. Her new book is The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. That's today's topic. Welcome, Ms. Hudson. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, well, why don't you first just tell us, what is civic renaissance? What, what, is, what does that do? So when I left government in uh, 2018, um, spring of 2018, it was I, I, I was very dispirited uh, about the state of our public life and um, public discourse, and I wanted to have an outlet to kind of keep learning and reflecting on some foundational ideas that uh, I cared about that I thought were relevant to this question of how to do life together across difference. That is the foundational question of not just my book, but also human community in general across all times and places. And um, I Civic Renaissance is how I kind of started doing that. I love being a writer because it allows me to ask questions and, and ruminate on, on, on um, and, and keep learning uh, publicly and alongside other people. So it's a, a newsletter, publication, intellectual community that I founded dedicated to the ideas I love. It's dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives today. So um, it's been really fun to see the community grow over the last several years, and it's it's my kind of primary outlet to, to ruminate and reflect on on the highest goods and things in life. Civility. You begin with your mother. She, she's, you, you know, I, I actually once wrote an article on Emily Dickinson and, and 19th century conduct books, civility books. They were actually fun, fun to read, manners and deportment and, and, and all the rest. But you begin with what you mentioned, some of the manners, etiquette, uh, uh, authorities in our, and, your, and your mother. Tell us about her. What, what, what did she teach you? So my mother, and I learned this over the course of writing my book, is um, she's called Judy the Manners Lady. But what I discovered is that she's really only one of four women named Judith across the world who are actually prim primarily in America, who are internationally renowned experts and authorities on all things manners and etiquette. Um, the most famous of which is Judith Martin, Miss Manners, who writes for the Washington Post. There's also a woman named Judith Ray out of Boston and another Judith named Bowman. Um, funnily enough, all Judiths also have ties to Boston, including my mother. And so my mother is definitely my favorite Judith in the in the manners industry, but um, she's really one of four, which is very, very silly, very, very funny. Um, so my mother, she is unquestionably the most kind and gracious person I've ever known. Just so hospitable, has just this welcoming spirit, wants to make the outsider the insider. That's just how she lives her life and, and um, just brings light wherever she goes. And um, so she modeled 
true civility and kindness and, and courtesy for us, but also taught manners, you know, taught the, the, the ways and means of, of social graces and niceties in life. And one thing my mother always said was that manners were an outward reflection of our inward character. So I kind of carried that with me. You know, manners are about how you conduct yourself, but they communicate. They're a shorthand for what's going on, our inner state. And um, all of a sudden I found, and I, I never really questioned that. Um, I did question manners, especially, you know, because uh, I don't like being told what to do. I'm kind of constitutionally allergic to arbitrary authority, but um, I did kind of follow them and, and um, these norms and niceties, how to sit the table, um, how to carry on social conversation, things like that. But I always kind of question them in the back of my head. Why do we do things the way we do them? But I, um, I did, it wasn't really until I got to government um, uh, winter of 2017 that I really began to, 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 to think seriously about these ideas and maybe question them because all of a sudden I was surrounded by two extremes. On one side, um, there were the people who were overtly aggressive and hostile. They made it clear that they were going to stomp on you and anyone else to get what they wanted and to succeed. And then on the other side, however, and I was at first I found relief, I felt relief to discover this, you know, this other people that who engaged in this other mode of being, um, they were polite, they were polished, they knew the norms, they knew the ex social expectations, the social graces. And uh, I, I thought, finally, I found like my people. <laughs> and then these same people would turn around and stab you in the back the moment that you no longer suited their needs. And I realized that these were kind of the more seasoned politicos in, in Washington. They, they knew how to play the game. Um, and, and, and so all of a sudden, you know, I had these words of my mother uh, echoing in my head that manners were an uh, outer reflection of our inward character. And yet I was surrounded by people who um, had the social graces and the polish of politeness, but were kind of ruthless and deeply cruel. Mm -hmm. And so there's that mismatch of the inner and outer, that the, the manners and the morality that, that caused me to think, like, maybe there is, maybe, maybe there's a difference here between civility and politeness, and maybe we don't actually need more politeness, and maybe we need civility, and what is civility? Um, so I left government after a year of working there um, to, to, to think more deeply about this. I, 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 go ahead. What, what, what office were you in, if I may ask? I was a secretary DeVos at the Department of Education. Okay. And this isn't a discount to her at all. <laughs> She's a lovely person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, no. The, the, I mean, the, the, the people who they, they have a certain canniness, don't they? They're, they're very good at reading, reading a room, you know, <laughs> re reading, reading people, and you know, those of us who we don't want to go through life like that. I mean, we probably could. If we if we wanted to, we would we would work at it. We would get better at sort so, sort of again uh, manner uh, polite, but but you know always a little calculating, a little a little manipulative. We don't want to be that way. Mm -hmm. We don't want to live like that. We we don't. I don't, I don't want to manipulate people into things to to my own advantage. I mean, beyond we all we all try to get ahead. Uh, but what you're describing, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's it's different, and that that is what led you. That's what led you to distinguish, and that's an important distinction in your book between manners, civility, and 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 politeness. Civility and and, and politeness. So civility runs deeper. Exactly. Yeah? Exactly. So how I define the distinction is that, and I, and I originally sold my book to St. Martin's Press with the title 
against politeness. And that was kind of a core, because that is the core part of my argument, core part of my book. And my editor ultimately wanted it to be more hopeful and optimistic, not against something, but for something. So now it's mm -hmm. as noted the soul of civility. So um, yeah, how I make the distinction is that politeness is a technique. It's manners, it's etiquette, it's the outward manifestation um, the, uh, of, of norms. Civility, by contrast, is an inner disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others in the world, seeing our fellow human beings as, as beings with equal moral worth, creating God's image, bearing the imprint of the divine, and because of the Imago Dei, because of that imprint of the divine, bearing, uh, um, deserving a bare minimum of respect, uh, regardless of whether we agree with them, whether they are like us or think like us, and importantly for Washington, um, whether they can do anything for us in return. It's the most natural, that's the, that's the logic of the world, to, to be gracious and kind and polite and obsequious even sometimes for people who can help us. Uh, but what about people who can't? The, 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 the people, in, people in life that we encounter, like you know, cashier, Uber driver, other people that are just in the marketplace of life that, um, that can't help us, but how do, we, how do we treat them? What do we owe them? Um, and, and, um, yeah, so that's, that's the difference between civility and politeness. And you, you, so you talk about leaving Washington a little bit, you know, a little bit, a little bit shaken, uh, by things and you, you got out outside the beltway and you say that, you know, in, in a way you, you almost, uh, rebuilt, uh, a moral sense of things with your, with your Christian faith. It, it helped you. It was, it was a bit of a bulwark against uh, uh, despair. Let, let me just ask a, a side question. While you were in D.C., did you encounter a lot of Christian faith among people? That's a great question. So, and that's really interesting. That, that was part of what was so hard, I think. Like a lot of, um, many people who I worked alongside in Washington, um, you know, I, they, we, would, we would pray at lunchtime one moment and uh, I'm thinking of one person in particular, uh, and then, you know, they'd undermine me the next. And so it wasn't just politeness. It was also the Christian faith weaponized as well, like where, where I thought we had this commonality, this moral foundation. We shared this prism through which we saw the world and others, and, and yet acting in ways that were less than uh, genuine, less than, less than honest. So, um, you know, that's my, that's my story. That's my experience. But I think we've all had experiences, not just in Washington, where people are not all that they seem to be. They, they smile, they say the right things, do the right things, dress the right way, but then we get to know them or we just notice certain things where that polished exterior, that veneer, isn't corroborated with a, with a sound inner character, that, that they're, they're using norms, politeness, polish as a shortcut for that, trying to get it the easy way. Uh, and that's, that's, that's something that we've been struggling with for a long time, from the ancient Greeks to the Victorians to even early modern and early modern American history. Like we, we know the phrase the con man today, but that goes back to this era of um, the confidence man in, in the early, uh, sorry, like late 1800s, this era of like mass industrialization, urbanization. People are moving off the farms, out of small towns and into big cities together. And manners, all of a sudden, you know, we couldn't rely on reputation and family name and things like that. that th those are how we knew how we could, who we could trust and how, who we could do business with, that these like small towns where everyone knows everybody. Instead, we're in this mass anonymous society and we had to figure out really quickly, how do we know who we can trust and do business with? And manners were an important part of communicating that, that shortcut for a person's character. Can I trust this person? Can I, can I engage in, in some sort of transaction with them? 
and the confidence man emerged from this um, in this in, in this moment in in this in, in this in this in American history, where a guy, a really polished-looking, dapper dapper man, would emerge and and pretend to, to know you. Mark, good to see you again. How is your family? You know, and 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 all while you know, kind of charming you, taking your wallet, and you wouldn't know it until later. And you're like, and you're like, wait, what just happened? I thought this polished person, like you know, was was flattering me with their attention. And now they've robbed me blind. Like what? And so we, 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 this, this disconnect is deeply troubling because on one hand we need to have these shortcuts. We, we can never, you know, Samuel says like the, the, the man looks at outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We can never truly know a person's inner state of being. We have to rely on just what we can see, but we also have to have the humility to recognize that there's a deep imperfection and a mis a mismatch between what we see and what it really is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, our natural disposition when someone comes to us and presents that that facade is to respond, you know, kindly and, and, and genially. And they, they, boy, they love that. Right. That, 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 that's what they that's what they they, they play upon. Now, in, in modern life, after yeah, you, you do go back in time, say incivility is certainly not a, a new problem. But you do say that so much of modern life today really involves. Uh, a temptation to exert something that you term the libido dominando, dominandi. What does that term uh, signify? How does that undermine civility? That's Augustine. That's not me. That's Augustine's account, uh, St. Augustine's account of the human condition. Um, so in uh, my book, I actually open with the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest story in the world. And the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, it starts with Gilgamesh, who's king of Uruk. This is literally in, in ancient Mesopotamia, the cradle of human civilization. And there's kind of this dissonance with, with Gilgamesh as king, because on one hand, he is the king of the, like, the biggest and most uh, sophisticated and advanced civilization in the human world at this time. Um, at this, however... Um, he's also deeply bad. <laughs> he's, he's deeply flawed. He, he's famous for what's called first night's rights. So on the evening, uh, a man and women or infamous rather a man and women are, are, are married after their ceremony. He would take a woman and have her have his way with her before that, like really just monstrous grotesque. And he would just take what he wanted whenever he wanted from whomever he wanted with disregard for the well-being of his citizens and anyone else. So he was someone uh, who Augustine would say was ruled by this lust to dominate the libido dominante. And so there's this, this dissonance because, you know, he's a deeply, um, you know, sophisticated, urbane, like head of the, this urban center of the, of, of the world, and yet deeply barbaric as well. Uh, and Augustine would say that that is the human condition. Uh, as Pascal would say, Blaise Pascal, uh, one of my other favorite thinkers alongside Augustine, that the human condition is defined by the greatness and wretchedness of man. And so this, this inclination towards greatness and wretchedness, the libido dominandi, but are also altruistic and social um, and communal aspects of who we are, that runs deep. And it runs, um, that's why this, this the, the tension, the fragility of human community um, has been fragile across time and across place. So we think it's bad today, it's been bad um, before. And so the, how the epic of Gilgamesh ends is that the God that the people of Earth cry out to the gods and they say, please save us from Gilgamesh's tyranny. And they create from clay Enkidu. Enkidu emerges from the clay and he's this kind of primal, hirsute, 
being and he is who the gods create to go and and take on uh gilgamesh so uric um goes to um goes to Uruk and challenges Gilgamesh to a duel of sorts and they wrestle day and night they wrestle and the people of Uruk are are uh, anxious who's gonna win who's gonna win Who, the good this 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 battle that goes on and on and on finally Gilgamesh defeats Uruk and Uruk uh, defeats sorry Enkidu <laughs> and um, Enkidu uh, you know admits that Gilgamesh is the superior warrior and and uh, combatant in this in this conflict and, but something kind of remarkable happens. Enkidu then extends an offer of friendship and kindness to Gilgamesh, which Gilgamesh remarkably accepts. And so the two former combatants become friends and the rest of the Epic of Gilgamesh, I don't know if, you've, if you know it or your readers have, are familiar, but the rest is this, um, this kind of motley pair going off and doing fun adventures together for like for the rest of the tablets, for the rest of the, the story together. And, and, um, and they become the, yeah, just the best of friends. And, and so what's, what's remarkable about that is like the, the, this, this, this milk of human goodness that Enkidu shows his, his captor, the person who had just beat him in, 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 in combat, transforms this tyrant. It, it, it appeal, appeal, appeals to and cultivates um, him in a way that transforms him from this base, monstrous tyrant into a model king and, and, and friend. And so after that, that's like a point of moral conversion for Gilgamesh and he becomes just this, this, this hero uh, to history. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so what I love about that is that um, this, this story illustrates that um, the libido dominandi is part of the human condition. Like we're defined by self-love and the libido dominandi on one hand, but we're also de defined by incredible altruism and capability to be kind and good on the other. And, 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 we're, and, and we're deeply social on the other hand. Like we, we, we become fully human. We thrive in relationship and flourish in community. We know that, which is why people across history have come together. We know we can do more and be more with others than alone. Um, as, as in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. We're created for community. We're called to community. But the human condition is such that community and friendship will always be fragile because of these foundational parts of, of, of our nature. And so how I define civility is that it's, it's, it's the way in which we surrender the ego, surrender self-love, surrender the re repressed libido dominandi so we can flourish in community. You know, one of the, one of the instruments of of managing those contrary uh, components uh, comes out of someone you cite, uh, sociologist Norbert, uh, Norbert Elias and his 1939 book, The Civilizing Process, which draws on some of these historical sources to lay out the premise that civilization really depends upon, uh, you put it in, an ethic of self-control. Mm -hmm. Is and and self control that that's what absolutely contains that that libido yes uh that that's what that's what we need do do i mean is is what well, would would you find self control sort of one of the one of the basic premises of 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 the banners conduct de deportment it really begins with control yourself mm -hmm. you know restrain yourself a, a, a little bit because you Part of you doesn't want to restrain yourself mm -hmm. e ever. <laughs> you don't. You don't. You, you don't. You don't like that. Um, it's a. It's a hard message for for today's world, isn't it? 
It's really, I think so. And it's, it's interesting that we're, we're in this age of authenticity where we want to just lay bare who we are and we want to just speak right. our truth and be whoever we want to be. Um, but that, and that's kind of the interesting tension between like nature and culture. We, that, that's where human beings reside. We reside at the, and human community resides at the intersection of nature and culture. Like on one hand, there are certain things about what it means to be human that are unchanging. On the other hand, there are aspects of ourself and community um, that do change and they, they change across history and across culture a little bit. There's something, and that's, that's, this is actually, you know, Mark, the foundation question, you know, that's the, the foundational question of philosophy. What is the universal and what is the particular? And um, this is what has been fun about looking at the kind of the, 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 the human narrative, the human historical record, and looking at this question of the universal and the particular through the lens of, of social norms and manners across history and culture. What have been the practices and rituals and mores that have contributed to human flourishing? And what are those that have, um, you know, been manifestations of and exacerbated and inflamed the ego and self-love? and the libido dominandi that have allowed us to create outgroups and to oppress marginalized communities and, you know, label some people in other places or even in our own culture, barbarians or barbaric or less than human even. Um, and so it's, it's been really interesting, really fun to, um, yeah, parse that and just, and just explore that through, through, through this lens. Yeah. You go back to one, one figure, uh, this ancient Egyptian statesman, I, I'm actually not going to try to pronounce his his name. Hatotep. Okay. Who, and, and, and well, tell us who he was, what did he do, and how did he end up writing a, a kind of a civility book? So once upon a time, there was a man named Tatotep who had achieved everything in life. He had um, reached the pinnacle of political and social and cultural life in ancient Egypt. He was the visor to the king, but... Everyone so beloved him, and the, and the, the, the sorry, the uh, pharaoh so beloved him that he was offered to become pharaoh, and he turned it down. He turned down. He walked away from this offer to have everything, uh, to lead a quiet, sort of more pastoral life, to think and reflect on you know the great life he had had. And after he had stepped back from public life, he uh, took it upon himself to write down his his maxims, his teachings for the recipe of a good life and, and human flourishing. And this is this mark that it's called the, the maxims or the teachings of Tarotep is the oldest book in the world. It dates back to 36 to 3800 BC. And it, uh, if you, you can find them on the interwebs right now, you just Google the maxims of Tarotep and they are remarkably timeless. I mean, they're, they're very like basic things. Some, some, some we would agree with, but seem obvious to us today, for example, but it, you know, deeply humane. So for example, uh, he says, don't beat your wife. That's that, that was a hot take in ancient Egypt apparently, but like here, that's kind of just a suit. We don't, we're kind to, <laughs> to our spouses. Um, but he also says things like and this, this one, um, he says things like, don't be ungracious and unkind to people who are less powerful than you. Hmm. Like wield your power well. Any of it. He says, don't, he says, be good to your friends at all times, not just when you need something. I love this. He has like, I don't know, maybe three or maybe four discrete maxims. There's only 38 and he dedicated a number of them against gossip and slander, condemning this, this, this all too human tendency to be one way to people's face and another way behind their back. And so it's remarkable, this, 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 um, the oldest book in the world, first of all, it's remarkable that the oldest book we have 
on record is a civility handbook. It's a conduct manual for how to do this difficult thing and fragile thing called life together. That's not a foregone conclusion, but there are such rich rewards on offer if we're for those that um, that 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 dedicate that that are dedicated to it. Um, but that also in this distant past, in this distant culture that we know very little about in, in terms of just you know how much we know about them today uh, in our culture, that there's so much that is still true that we could pick mm-hmm. it up. It should be taught in you know, kindergarten class today, it's still very much how that it echoes like some of the, the maxims that are on kindergarten classes, <laughs> like just, you know, share, be kind, things like that. Um, and I think that speaks to both the unchanging nature of the human condition that yes, this has been a problem for a long, long time. And the human condition is the human condition, whether in ancient Egypt or Mark, Washington, D.C., <laughs> or Indianapolis, where, where I live for that matter. Um, but also that humans are forgetful, you know, the curse of human forgetfulness, that's part of the human condition. And we need, and this is, this is how I dedicate, um, I dedicate this, this, uh, I, I explore this idea rather in chapter two, that there have been tattoo taps in every culture that have emerged and had to remind their community, what, what their tribe, their, their nation of these timeless principles of good living together. Because again, um, human community is, 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 is uh, lavish, like the gifts, the gifts and rewards are lavish. There's such high promise to life with others, but it's hard, requires work, and it's not a foregone conclu- conclusion. We're deeply forgetful, and we're we're defined by self love, and it's really easy to tell ourselves stories that justify that self love and that put this shared project of living well with others in jeopardy. Uh, th- th- there's more in your in your historical summary. Your reference to to historical treatises from the past, including, you know, Erasmus's uh, work. But I want to before we run out of time, I want to jump ahead. You mentioned moving to Indianapolis. When you moved from D.C. to Indianapolis, you you encountered a new word, porching. <laughs> Tell us about that, and and, wh- and what does that signify in in terms of our our topic here? So there's a great essay written um, by Richard H. Thomas in a now defunct publication called From Front, uh, the publication is called The Palimpsest, and the essay is called From Front Porch to Patio. And Thomas tells a story about architecture and social values. He says, 100 years ago, homes were built with these great big front porches. And that was a social statement about what that era valued. They, they valued, they were communitarian and they valued presence. And, and the porch was this quasi-public living room where you would sit on the porch and, you know, have your tea at night and wave to your neighbors. And just, it was a statement of presence and a statement mm-hmm. of belonging and, and saying hi to your neighbors and strangers alike. It was just a, a, a forum to... Um, uh, to promote these social interactions that, that build a society. And then over the last 100 years, slowly um, the, the front porch, as they built more houses, moved to the modern-day patio, moved to the back of the house to the patio. And the patio is a different space with a different social statement. The patio is private. It's curated. It's often fenced in. And it's, it's, um, it's, you, you just have who you want there. You're not just interacting with any old neighbor and any old stranger that passes by your house. It's just who you like. It's your family, your friends. And, and that tracks a social shift from more communitarianism to a hundred years ago to a more individualistic society now. 
And um, so that's that's his essay from Front Porch to Patio. And I had read that essay prior, but then that I, I, I approached it with with fresh lens when I met Joanna Taft, who um, I, she approached my husband and I after church one day and introduced herself and was just very gregarious and, and kind and said, do you want to come porch with us today? And I never heard the word porching used as a verb, um, but we ended up going to her home to porch. And, you know, she had this hundred year old home, great big front porch. And we had, um, you know, we had some charcuterie just talked and it was just this convening of um, people across different socioeconomic strata, across um, race, across political beliefs, just being together, just being present, having conversation and building friendship. Um, mm -hmm across these divides and the porch is this is this communal living room it is this meeting space and she consciously cultivates and curates this this space to to be that and to, because it's a social statement of of unity and and, and, it, and it's kind of revolutionary so to have this this space be a social statement of unity in this atomized time and of, of communitarianism in, in a very individualistic era um and I, the the porch remarkably is kind of this incubator of civic projects, like people come together and they collaborate, like, and it's just spontaneous. It's just a place for spontaneous, you know, per interpersonal history to, to happen and, and take off. So it's, it's, it's this really remarkable place. So the porch is actually um, a metaphor uh, of, of the book and of, of society. And it, it's a metaphor of the social chain, the theory of social change that I advocate in the book. Um, it, when Marcus Aurelius was emperor of, of Rome, he endowed four chairs of philosophy. For the Platonists, he endowed the Academy. For the Epicureans, he endowed the Garden. For the um, Aristotelians, he endowed the Lyceum. And for the Stoics, he endowed the Stoa, or the Porch. And what's fun about this is that, you know, Joanna kind of embodies a very stoical vision of social change. Like, you can't change the world. You can't change who's in the White House. You can't change what's happening in Washington. And most of the headlines that we consume our time, that, that consume our time, rather, that we allow to consume our time, we can't change. But we can change ourselves. And we can change how we engage in the world around us with others. And we don't even need a porch to adopt that porching philosophy, that porching mindset. It can be a stoop. It can be, you know, just being present, bringing, like, know, knowing your neighbors. And not just knowing them, like, you know, knowing enough about their life when they have a baby, when they're sick, bring them groceries, things like that. Just just um, having this sort of public-facing mindset that is proactively looking for needs and friendship and, and open, rather, to um, those, those, those bids of, of affection uh, for the, with, with, those, with those that you surround yourself with. And that's revolutionary, again, in our atomized moment. That's my theory of, of, of social change and how I am very confident we can make the world a better and more civil place by reclaiming our power as individuals to reclaiming our, our sphere of influence, uh, to elevate it and ennoble it and make it better and brighter. The book is The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Alexander Hudson, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. Mm -hmm.